All right, well, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started. We've got a lot of material to get through this morning. I'm excited to jump into and continue our uh, study, our survey through the Old Testament this morning with the book of Numbers. So let's go ahead and, uh, and go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our, on our time spent in the Word together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this day. Thank you for your steadfast love and your mercies that are new every morning. We are glad to come to your Word and we ask for your Holy Spirit to, to open our eyes to, uh, to the truth that you've revealed about yourself. I ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to teach your Word now and that you would open our hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Every great story contains three key components, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Now, I know I just blew some of your minds with that razor-sharp insight. But it is true that you can have the absolute best setting with the beginning of a story and the perfect resolution at the end, but without that, uh, it's, I think the mic might just be a little bit hotter. I'm getting some feedback. Without that resolution, without that middle piece, you don't have the full story. There's no Lord of the Rings without the Two Towers. No Star Wars without The Empire Strikes Back. Although we could definitely have Star Wars without anything made after 1983, in my humble opinion. But I digress. In this epic, true story of the Exodus, where God is saving his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them to the land of promise, the book of Numbers is that crucial middle piece. It contains the narrative of everything that happened between Sinai and Joshua's conquest of Canaan. Now, Moses wrote the book of Numbers in the final year of his life, having been eyewitness to its events. This is the fourth of the five books authored by him, which form the Pentateuch, or the law. In the Hebrew Torah, the book of Numbers is called the Midbar, or in the wilderness. This phrase uh, is really descriptive of everything that happens in this book. It is a phrase used 48 times in the book of Numbers, in the wilderness. Now, our English title of Numbers um, is in reference to the two times that a census was taken of the people. The first one in chapter 1, taken of the old generation that God led out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, and the second time in chapter 26, taken of this new generation that is about to enter Canaan in the plains of Moab. So this is an incredibly diverse book in terms of its literary content. Um, in addition to the census statistics and numberings, we have genealogies, we have uh, descriptions of military divisions, historical narrative, poetry, and prophecy. Uh, the book of Numbers follows the stories of these two generations of Israelites, beginning with the first that God brought up out of Egypt, and then this uh, second generation after the first had, had died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, because they refused to enter Canaan. So some key themes of this book that we, we need to see. Um, first of all, we see this 
recurring juxtaposition of man's faithlessness towards God and God's faithfulness to his word. We see it contrasted over and over throughout the book of Numbers, man's faithlessness with God's faithfulness. God being faithful specifically to his promise to Abraham to give his seed the land of Canaan, and also to his promise made at Sinai to bring judgment for sin and to have mercy on repentance. Another of the key themes that we see in this book is God's fierce jealousy for his holiness and for his glory. We also see his requirement that this holiness be upheld through the faith and the obedience of his people. Now, although the timeline of the book of Numbers covers these, this 40-year period, uh, the, the vast majority of its content pertains to just two years. The first 14 chapters recording the events which occurred in the second year after the Exodus, and the last 16 chapters dealing with the final year of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And so it's those middle five chapters alone that deal with the intervening 38 years of aimless wandering in the wilderness. So the book we can, we can really divide into these three clear sections. Chapters 1 through 14... Um, from Sinai to Kadesh with the first generation, chapters 15 through 19 uh, with Israel's wandering in the wilderness, and then chapters 20 through 36 with this second generation uh, that God leads from Kadesh to Moab and to the borders of the Promised Land. So we're going to do this morning just a quick flyover of the book of each of these Division, stopping along the way to zoom in on some of the highlights. So let's begin by looking at the first major division that's found in chapters 1 through 14, which brings us to the foot of Mount Sinai, where we were left off in Leviticus, and from there to Canaan with this first generation. In chapter 1, we have the first numbering of the book of Numbers, where God commands Moses to take a census of the people. And in this census, they counted every male from 20 years old and up, which at the time, uh, we're told, was 603,550 men. So add to that the women and the children who were there, and you get estimates between 2 and 2.5 million people. That's roughly the population of the city of Chicago. Now, that God could sustain or would sustain such an unbelievable number of people in the wilderness for 40 years is an incredible testament to his care and provision. Chapter 2 is actually a really fascinating look into the logistics that were required to move an encampment of more than 2 million people. In it, God gives these detailed and specific instructions for the arrangement of the camp with exact placement at all four points of the compass of each tribe around the tabernacle, which was at the center of the camp. Um, we also have this precise ordering that God lays out for the marching out of the people and for making camp. Each tribe knew exactly when and where they were to leave and where they were to make camp and the ordering of all of that. 
chapters 3 through 4 um, have to do with the numbering and the duties and the labor divisions of the Levites. Chapter 5 gives us um, prescriptions for ritual, ritual cleansing of the camp from defilement and for dealing with sin among the people. This is another key theme uh, that is brought out throughout the book of Numbers, this cleansing. The need for cleansing and for purity is emphasized repeatedly, just like it was in the book of Leviticus. The people needed to be clean because God was dwelling in their midst. And his holiness demanded that they be set apart as holy unto him. Chapter 6, we have God giving directions for those who are taking uh, the Nazarite vow. And as well, his direction to Aaron. This is really a, a beautiful part of this book as he gives him this pattern for how he is to bless the people. In verses 24 through 26 of chapter 6, we have this this gem of Aaron's blessing. It says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace. In chapter 7 and 8, we see these preparations that are being made. Everything is leading up to a celebration of the second Passover after they have been brought out of Egypt. And uh, so we have the anointing and the dedication of the altar. We have each tribe uh, being told by God to bring an offering. They're presenting these offerings for the dedication of the altar and for the observation of this second Passover. Um, as well, we have the Levites in chapter 8 getting their marching orders from God, going through this uh, ceremonial process of cleansing in order to be um, sanctified to serve before God in the tabernacle. So in chapter 9, this second Passover is celebrated, um, and we're told how at that time this, this cloud and pillar of fire representing God's presence, covered the tabernacle. If you'll, uh, if you'll open to chapter 9, we'll read from verse 5. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. And this, this phrase... Uh, the command of the Lord by Moses is a, a really important one because it speaks to another key uh, theolo theological concept, a key theme of the book of Numbers, um, and that is of God, uh, God's appointing of Moses or Moses' role as his representative to the people. See, they understood that Moses spoke for Yahweh. And consequently, how they treat Moses 
how they respond to his leadership throughout this book is, is really how they are responding to God. So if we read the book through that lens, it, it reveals a lot to us about the depth of the people's rebellion towards God. When we read, they grumbled against Moses, what we should get is that they are grumbling against God. When they try to throw off Moses' authority, um, it's really God's authority that they have a problem with. Now, for a time, they, they try to hide this behind their abuse and their accusations of Moses. Moses, why did you do this? Why have you done this? But eventually, the mask does come off, and their true rebellion is exposed. So in chapter 10, uh, we have this, the excitement of their setting out from Sinai. The journey begins with them being led by this cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 33 reads, so they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. I find it amazing how intimately and how deliberately we see God's involvement here in leading his people on this this journey. Um, He's literally moving before them, saying, here's when we're going to leave, and here's where we're going to stop Verse 15 says, Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. He is with them. He's their guide. He's their shepherd. He is in charge. And at the end of chapter 10 in verses 35 and 36, we have this particularly beautiful passage about what Moses would say as the people set out on this journey. Verse 35 says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So our journey from Sinai begins with God leading his people, the people following him. They are obeying. And you really, really wish that it could have continued like this. But it didn't take long for the trouble to start. In chapter 11, we read that the people begin to complain. Look down in 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So verses 1 and verse 2 of chapter 11 outlined perfectly for us this pattern of events that's going to repeat itself over and over throughout the book of Numbers, where the people sin against God, incurring his just anger 
against their sin. He brings judgment. The people then repent, and God's mercy is extended to them, often through the agency of Moses' intercession on their behalf. So in this pattern, we can see so clearly contrasted that theme we mentioned at the beginning, the faithlessness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. Numbers shows us that he's, he's faithful to bring judgment for sin just as he said that he would. He is also faithful to show mercy to those who repent just as he said that he would. God always acts in keeping with his word. Now, as Christians on this side of the New Testament, uh, it can be exciting for us to see in this Old Testament book these early echoes of such gospel truths as God's justice and his mercy and the need for an intercessor. Now, moving on in verse 4 of chapter 11, it is the same song, second verse, as what we've already seen. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. It was better for us in Egypt. Now just let that sink in for just a second. These people are homesick for slavery. They're ready to go back. It's hard to imagine a more complete disdain for what God has done than what they are saying. Then this is shocking to us. And it would be so easy to kind of sit back and, and find ourselves thinking, what is wrong with these people? But how often do we find ourselves homesick for the life that we've been saved from? When we harbor a craving for sin, when our hearts wish that they didn't have to follow God's rules, we are just like them. And we can be thankful that even when we are faithless, our God remains faithful. But it is not merely the act of sinning, but also the rebellious longing for it that is a rejection of God and must be turned away from. So in verse 20, when the people grumble in this way, Moses says, you have rejected the Lord who is among you. And we see here one of the key takeaways from this book, and it is that God takes a complaining, grumbling heart seriously. Because discontent with what God provides is discontent with God himself. So God tells Mo Moses, Moses, I want you to tell the people to get ready. I'm about to give them just what they have demanded. Tomorrow they're going to eat meat. And not just for a day or two or five or ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it's coming out their noses. Moses, at this, has, has a, a little moment of doubt. He's, he's not convinced. He says, God, can I remind you, there are kind of a lot of us. Uh, how are you going to do this? And the Lord replies in verse 23 with what could really be the theme verse of this book. He says, is the Lord's hand shortened? 
Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. It's almost like God rolls up his sleeves and says, Moses, watch me. So the next morning it was cloudy with a chance of meat birds. <laughs> Don't say I never gave you anything. There you go. God sent a wind from the sea driving these huge flocks of quail And it literally rained meat around the camp until we're told that the ground was two cubits, almost three feet deep, with dead birds as far as the eye could see. But this was not a dream come true. It was a nightmare. Verse 33 reads, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Sometimes the scariest thing that can happen for us is for God to actually give us what our sinful hearts demand. How merciful he is when he says no. We see this lesson repeated when Israel comes to the promised land for the first time. In chapter 13, Israel arrives at Kadesh Barnea, on the east side of the Jordan River. They're at the doorstep of the Promised Land. And they send in these 12 spies to scout out the land. The book of Deuteronomy makes clear that this was actually their idea, not God's. And in verse 27, we read the report brought back by these spies. Verse 27 of chapter 13 reads, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of the Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So in chapter 14, all of these spies, except Joshua and Caleb, bring this bad report to the nation. And it is at this point that a big view of the enemy combined with a small view of God, leads them to a crisis of faith and devastating consequences. Chapter 14 begins, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? See, now it's out in the open. It's no longer, Moses, why did you do this? Now it's, why has the Lord brought us here to die? They are openly accusing God of evil intent. Obviously, he's brought us here with the intention of killing us. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader 
and go back to Egypt. This is serious. This fear and doubt has led them to impugn the character of God. It is an all-out mutiny. And there's pain in God's voice in verse 11 as he says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And again, Moses intercedes for the people in his sovereignly appointed role. Moses says, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. See, Moses is hearkening here back to when God made his glory pass before him in the cleft of the rock on Sinai. At that time, he proclaimed these very words. And Moses is pleading God's forgiveness for the people, not on the basis of who they are, but on who God has revealed himself to be, his own glory, his own Word. Moses says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. And yet, sin has consequences. And the rebellion of this people will not go unpunished. In verse 30, God pronounced this sentence against them. He says, Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Faithlessness and rebellion against God brings his just judgment. Now, the second major division of the book of Numbers that we come to in chapters 15 through 19 deals with the events which happened during Israel's wandering in the wilderness during their discipline after this, this crisis of faith at Kadesh. But what is really striking um, is how little, little we are actually... <laughs> let me start again. How little we are actually told about that time. A mere five chapters are all that we have to cover 38, almost 38 years. Only two of those chapters actually contain narrative about those 38 years. But the scripture's silence on this time of wandering actually speaks volumes. 37 years and an entire generation lost, wasted. But we do know some things from chapters 15 through 19. We know that even after what happened at Kadesh, God continues to teach Israel his law during the years of their discipline. 
In chapters 15, 18, and 19, um, we are given, uh, they deal with his giving of the law regarding sacrifices, regarding the duties of the priests and the Levites, and laws as well for purification. Purity was needed because God is still dwelling with his people. He did not abandon them. In chapter 15, verse 41, after reminding them, this is, this is during their wandering in the wilderness, during their, their discipline, after reminding them that they are to keep his commandments and be holy unto him, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Despite the faith, faithlessness of his people, God remains faithful. Now in chapters 20 through 36, we get into the, the final main division of this book with this new generation of Israel that is, um, is assembled together and traveling on this final march to the plains of Moab. Look down in verse 1 of chapter 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. So this first verse um, is, is highly significant in what we're told is happening. At what time and where? There's an emphasis in these words on the assembling at this time um, of the tribes, even the whole congregation. So what is the time? It is this first month of the 40th year of their wanderings. And the place is at Kadesh. This is the same place where God had pronounced his judgment against their parents. So this new generation, the oldest of whom would have only been children the first time God brought them here, is assembling together. They're preparing for this final march and for God to bring them into the land. And you would think that this would have been a time of great anticipation and excitement. Surely these Israelites had learned the lesson that their parents had not. They're going to trust God, right? Wrong. In verse 2, we see tragically history repeating itself. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you, Moses, made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So tragically, Kadesh in this chapter is about to again be a place of failure, but not only a failure for the people, but as well for Moses and for Aaron. Now Moses and Aaron go to God after this. They fall on their faces. What are we to do? He commands, God commands Moses to speak to a rock. 
and that water would come out. But in that moment, perhaps out of anger and bitterness, that this generation are just like their fathers. And certainly out of pride, Moses' faith faltered. He disobeyed God, and he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. See, the mode that God had commanded Moses to use was intended as a special testimony of faith before the people to display God's holiness. And in verse 12, God says to Moses, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Faithless disobedience brings judgment, even for Moses and for Aaron. But God remains faithful to his promise, and he shows mercy, and he shows mercy to Moses um, in a story that we will get to, where he brings him up to see the land of promise. And when Moses is gathered to his people, God himself carries him into the land and buries him there. In chapter 21, we have this account of the bronze serpent, as well as the destruction of Sihon and Og. And with this story of these fiery serpents and the bronze serpent, again we see this pattern repeated where the people sin against God. God brings judgment. The people repent, and God extends his mercy through the agency of Moses' intercession. Um, look down in the beginning of chapter 21. The people say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So here again, it is this dissatisfaction with God's provision that is actually dissatisfaction with God himself. Pray to the Lord, they say, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And we see these, these amazing gospel truths foreshadowed in this Old Testament book. This is another prime example of God, Israel's faithlessness contrasted with God's faithfulness. And in keeping his word, he shows both justice and mercy. And in John chapter 3, verse 14, we actually learn what a powerful gospel foreshadowing this story is when Jesus tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in chapters 22 through 24, things take a, a very interesting and entertaining turn with the account of Balak and Balaam and a donkey, which we probably don't have time to go into this morning. I'm pretty sure you guys are familiar with it. 
Uh, if not, talk to me after, afterwards. But um, Balaam is really a, uh, a mysterious character. Um, interestingly, recently, archaeologists uncovered a, uh, a plaster inscri- inscription uh, in Jordan mentioning Balaam uh, that dates to the 8th century B.C. So he was a, a magi or a, a soothsayer in this part of the world. And in the New Testament, he's spoken of by Peter as a false prophet. Jude verse 11 talks about Balaam uh, and the greed of those who run in the error of Balaam for profit. Balaam wanted money. And Balak, this king of Moab, or of Midian, rather, was looking to buy a curse. So he summons Balaam. And uh, he, he commands him to curse the nation of Israel as it has encamped near, near his lands. Um, but when it came down to it, God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. King Balak takes him up onto this high place, one of their sites of Baal worship overlooking the Israelite camp. And uh, instead of speaking a curse over the people, God speaks through Balaam uh, an oracle of blessing. And uh, it's actually pretty hilarious how Balak responds to this. It's almost like he's like, okay, that didn't work. This is obviously the wrong place. Let's go try that hill over there. And, uh, and so they, they go to another location, and Balaam speaks again a second oracle of blessing over the Israelites. This happens four times, at the end of which uh, Balak is like, okay, you're fired. But if you want to be blown away by God's faithful heart for his people, read these four oracles of Balaam spoken over Israel. And what's truly incredible about this section is that in, in this fourth and final oracle that God gave to Balaam, we have an early messianic prophecy which would be fulfilled at Jesus' birth. In verse 17 of Numbers in chapter 4, we read, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. He will crush the forehead of of Moab, and he will have dominion. An incredible prophecy that was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ. So Balaam could not curse the people, but before he left, he did as much damage as he could, telling this Moabite king how Israel could be defeated if its people could be seduced to worship Baal, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So in chapter 25, this is exactly what happens. In verses 1 through 3, we read, The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So again, 
Israel sins, and God brings judgment. He brings judgment on the leaders of the people. Um, he brings judgment in the form of this plague that kills thousands. But this egregious sin continues. We're told uh, in this chapter that in full view of the tabernacle and of Moses and the congregation who are there weeping over this sin, an Israelite man brought one of these Midianite women into his tent. And in verse 7, it says, When Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, saw this, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. In verse 11, God says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. God is jealous for his worship. He is fiercely jealous for his glory. Now in chapter 26, we have this second numbering of the people. A census is commanded by God to be taken again before they enter the land. And at this time, all of the men over the age of 20 number 601,730, 601, almost exactly the same number that we had with the first census at Sinai. But what's really interesting in verses 64 and 65, we read that among these, however, there was not one who had been numbered by Moses and Aaron, the priest, when they counted the Israelites at Sinai. So that first census, not one of them is left. For the Lord had told them that they would surely die in the wilderness. Not one that is except Caleb and Joshua. God keeps his word. He brings just, justice and judgment against sin. In chapter 27, we have Joshua chosen to succeed Moses in leading the people into the promised land. In chapter 28, we have God's directions for offerings. In 29, more directions for offerings and for worship. In 30, directions for vows between for vows for men and for women. In chapter 31, God has this one final task for Moses, and it is one that he carries out to the letter. In verse 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, these people who had seduced them away from him into idolatry. God says, Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So these Midianites, who on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord, God tells Moses, go out against them and take them out. So Moses sends a thousand men from every tribe against Midian, and they are wiped out. Every male is killed, and only the female children um, who are virgins are left. God is fiercely jealous. 
for the glory of his name. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. At Exodus 34, verse 14, he says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In chapters 32, we see these final preparations as God is priming this people giving them everything they need in order to go in and take possession of the promised land. Um, In chapter 33, Israel's entire journey from from Egypt to now is recounted with place after place that they camped in. And then we have in verse 51, this directive that God gives for when they come into the land. uh, Look down in chapter 33 and verse 51. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. In chapter 34, we have boundaries set out for this promised land that they were entering into. Chapter 35 um, deals with the the regulations for cities for the Levites and for cities of refuge in the promised land. And then chapter 36, God gives some specific instruction for how the allotments, the inheritances given to the tribes are to be uh, handed down from generation to generation, how they are to be kept within those tribes. So they are now poised at the end of the book of Numbers to take possession of Canaan. The final verse of Numbers reads, These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. God has exercised judgment against those who rejected him. He has brought their children to the promised land. He has taught them his laws. He has readied them to take possession of Canaan. And he has kept his promise to Abraham to give this promised land to his seed. He has done all that he said he would do because he is faithful to his word. I hope this has uh, whet your appetite for this incredible book um, and I know that I'm, I'm excited to actually go back and reread it. So um, as you are going through, Lord willing, your, your yearly Bible reading, um, I hope you are blessed uh, by what you find in God's Word in the book of Numbers. And I think that's the end of our time, so you are dismissed. We'll see you back here in 15 minutes for Worship Together.